This is episode 77 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, September 19th, 2023. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer with a mic, Brian Bemrose. So, I've been away for five days, left just shortly after Grumpy Old Ben's last week. I uh, did lots of stomping around in the wilderness, completely off the grid. I need to do that once in a while because I kind of live my life in front of this computer and getting the hell away from it for a few days. Uh, we were camping in the woods. I was in a tent and I did not even turn my phone on. It was amazing. There was also a lot of other things. Uh, you know, I, I play disc golf. I talk about that on GOB all the time. Um, but it uh, resulted in the kind of physical activity that I have become wholly unaccustomed to. So I needed quite a lot of recovery time for that. My computer also needed a lot of recovery time, it seems, which is the main reason why this show, if you're listening live, is a couple hours later than usual. I came back and the Ethernet controller did not come back up with the rest of my computer. So I am now streaming via Wi-Fi. I hope that it works. Uh, This is the kind of thing that I would completely ridicule if I were on the other show, Grumpy Old Ben's, but uh, I get to be like this until a new Ethernet card comes in. A quick birthday shout out to my friend Colin, who does not listen to my podcast because he doesn't like my politics, but he's getting older anyway, and I just uh, hung out with him. He uh, He's a lot of fun, so happy birthday. He is turning the big Douglas Adams birthday, so um, happy birthday. Uh, oh, and as a side note, where the hell is all the tech news this week? I am having to... I, I left... I was like, tech news should go on, but apparently it didn't go on because they were like, oh, Ryan's not there. He's not listening, so we don't need to make any new stories. I'm having to really scrape for stories between all of these rumors, press releases, maybe future plans and total fluff crap. It is almost as if some large company made some kind of overblown hype fest announcement that grabbed every single tech blogger's attention all at once. And then they all rushed out and stumbled over themselves as one to cover that one company in their one highly produced and controlled marketing message and simply forgot to write about anything else that happened anywhere in the industry. Although I can't imagine what that might've been. From the security is inconvenient and convenience is insecure department, Google has found a way to defeat two-factor authentication. All you have to do is trust Google. Near the end of August, security company Retool suffered a spear phishing attack when one of its employees clicked on a malicious SMS message uh, from an attacker, I guess, during a migration of some company services to using the Okta identity management platform. The employee was tricked into providing an OTP token from Google Authenticator to the attacker, enabling them to add the attacker's device to the user's Okta account. Retool's IT department detected the breach very quickly and moved to disable that account while it was all sorted out, and that should have been the end of it. It turns out that the victim had followed the default workflow in Google Authenticator, which encourages users to enable cloud synchronization for their MFA Authenticator tokens. Access to the Okta account allowed the attacker to create a G Suite session which allowed them to download the synced authenticator database, which immediately compromised every single account in the user's authenticator. 
The attacker then wasted no time in changing emails and passwords on every account therein, thus causing a huge security mess to be cleaned up, yada yada, you know the rest of the story. Retool had to lock down a bunch of accounts, reset a bunch of things from backups, etc. The company was quick to point out that no customers were impacted because they use a zero trust model for their hosted services. I'm not actually certain what that means, but kudos to them for getting their internal security right. The reason I bring this story at all is because of Google's part in it, which provides yet another example of the triumph of convenience over security. I bought a new phone almost 18 months ago, and yet I still have the old one on the desk, not least because I connected a bunch of authenticator codes to it and have not yet gone through the effort of deauthorizing the old phone and adding the new phone one by one to each of the affected accounts. It's a pain in the ass. I get it. But it's supposed to be a pain in the ass. They're made to be that way. The whole idea behind an authenticator app is that once you set the account up, that code is tied to that device, which means that if you can provide a code win challenge, then the service can be reasonably sure that means you have the device in your possession. That's the second factor in two-factor authentication, which is a strong indicator that you are the same person who set up the account. Is it a guarantee? No, but it increases security quite a bit when you combine it with a password. I mean, hence the two-factor part. So what happens when you introduce a cloud backup feature for your authenticator? The codes are no longer tied to the device. Any device on your Google account can now spoof the device the code was created on, which means that your Google account is the master account for all security on all accounts everywhere that you use. Own that Google account and you own everything connected to those authenticator codes. The second factor is completely defeated in every case. The only thing that matters is the first factor, a password. And you may as well not bother with two factor at all. Retool's suggestion to anyone using a Google Authenticator is to not enable Cloud Sync when you set up an account, although they say that's a lot easier said than done due to dark patterns in the Google Authenticator UI, which urge you to sync to the cloud. If you have turned it on, they say the app doesn't have any clear way to disable syncing to the cloud, rather than or, and rather, it just has one thing that says unlink Google account, which is overkill, but it'll do the job. Google has, with the addition of one convenience feature, cloud backup of sync tokens, a feature which is almost certainly requested by users all the time. They have, with the addition of this one feature, almost completely erased the security benefit of having an authenticator at all. The Verge reports on forum posts from some Pixel Watch users who now 11 months after the release of the Google Pixel Watch have suffered what many consider to be routine wear and tear on their devices and are unsatisfied with their watch repair options. That's because there are none. The Verge confirmed that the company has no repair process for the Pixel Watch, released in October of 22. None. Cracked screen, busted connector port, band falls off, arm falls off, buy a new watch, Google says. Actually, the last one might not. There is no warranty at all that covers damage like a cracked screen. And the funny thing is, iFixit's repair analysis of the Pixel Watch showed that the device is actually pretty easy to take apart and put back together but there are a few repair shops willing to try and they usually charge as much or more than the cost of a new device because Google does not supply any repair parts either. The only way most shops get parts is to cannibalize them from other Pixel watches as discarded by a previous owner. This obviously doesn't sit well with right to repair people who ran out to buy the thing at the moment it came out and who are now complaining to Google that Google is creating unnecessary e-waste, thus ruining the environment, depleting our natural resources, and obviously creating more climate change for generations to come. This is, of course, from users who couldn't even be bothered to hold off on a device purchase until whether or not they knew it could be repaired. But I suppose Twitter icon environmentalism only goes so far. 
It's one thing to complain on social media. It's totally something else to actually modify your buying decisions. From the Resolving Solved Problems Department, but with technology, Amazon announces Ring Pet Tag. I'll let Engadget explain this one. Here's how it works, they say. If you happen upon a lost pet wearing the Ring Pet Tag, flip the tag backwards and scan the QR code to find out who owns the animal, where they live, their phone number, relevant health information, such as required medications and the like. You can even contact the owner through the app and engage in a two-way conversation. Because yes, of course there's an app. Every time a company takes a fully solved problem and throws new whiz-bang technology at it, you can be certain that there is an app. They have to. Ring is stepping into a volatile and fast-moving industry, competing against other overly complex technical solutions like attaching an Apple AirTag to a pet and hoping they don't die when the batteries rupture after the pet eats it. So they've come up with, at the very least, something that doesn't have a battery. Now, let's be clear. We had a pretty good solution to this problem last century when we started putting telephone numbers on pet collars. The way that one worked was a person finds your pet, reads seven or ten digits off of the collar, and phones you up to arrange how to get your pet back to you. I'm not exactly sure when people started doing this, but I bet it's not long after the invention of telephone numbers. But now, everything is more convenient, and also controlled by Amazon. After you create and upload your pet profile, a would-be good Samaritan who finds your pet need only fish their phone out of their pocket, assuming they didn't leave it in a drawer, and scan a much more complicated QR tag on the collar using the app. This assumes the Samaritan has the right app, but I'm pretty sure Silicon Valley just assumes everyone has every app at all times. Honestly, they're not that far off. The app then conveniently connects to the cloud to download all of your pet's relevant data. Hopefully it doesn't also require that the Samaritan has to create an account and log in first, the article does not say. Although for what it's worth, the article doesn't even specifically say that the Samaritan has to connect to the internet at all. The data could theoretically be encoded into the QR, but I doubt it. Besides, these services always have a cloud component. Otherwise, where would they store all the private data that they collect through the app? In the end, our would-be Samaritan can now simply scan the pet tag in their own app, giving them everything they need to know about whose pet it is and where you live, while simultaneously triggering a notification in your app saying that your pet was found and scanned. All of this without ever having to speak to another human being. Isn't technology amazing? Once again, a Silicon Valley company has managed to take a problem that nobody was having and throw cloud-based app technology at it in order to eliminate human interaction a must-have feature for the introvert generation. Avoiding having to talk to a stranger is totally worth turning your pet into a mobile doxing platform. Of course, this new QR-based pet tag suffers from all of the problems of engraved tags. Phone numbers can get muddy or scratched, making them harder to read. QR codes can do the same, except with a lot more surface to be ruined. You also have to get the pet to sit still long enough to read the tag. In the old era, this required two hands, one arm to hold the pet, and one arm to pull the collar up and look at the tag. Now, apparently, you need to grow a third hand, one to hold your phone as well. But still, I think we can all agree that this is progress. Technology moves forward, changing how we interact with the world and making everything easier and more convenient. I guess this story wouldn't be complete if I didn't mention one other tiny little advance in the industry of tracking pets, another invention that used technology to solve the same problem by embedding a microchip into the pet with an ID number, which can be read at any veterinary clinic or animal shelter and who, or that has access to the National Pet Recovery Database. I will grudgingly admit 
that taking a found pet into a vet in order to get the owner's name, address, and private contact information is a lot more effort for a stalker than just scanning a tag. But I'm just saying that technology, put the technology, put an ID number on a pet and connect it to a centralized database is one that has been around for many, many years. But I guess nobody told Amazon about that. From the internal sabotage department, piling on from last week's story, highlighting the ineptitude of automobile makers when it comes to basic IT practices, Toyota suffered a recent production order system malfunction in its U.S. manufacturing plants as several of the computers controlling the production lines, quote, became unavailable, causing production to halt for the better part of a day while their IT systems were sorted out. Were they attacked? Was it hackers? Industrial sabotage? Hostile foreign state actors trying to disrupt our manufacturing base? Nope. According to Toyota, several of their servers experienced a insufficient disk space error while performing routine database backups. Oops. They say that IT in big corporations is a thankless job. If you do your job right, the higher-ups don't even know you're there. Well, congratulations, buddy. I'd say somebody just got noticed. And from the Vulnerability Update Repeat Department, finally, a headline that caught my eye from several outlets this week. Zero-day vulnerability may allow websites to run malicious code. Well, yeah, I thought. It's called JavaScript. But that's not what they meant. There is a newly documented critical heat heap overflow vulnerability in the libwebp image display library, which is surprise, surprise used to uh, library used to display images in the webp format. Uh, the label for this one is CVE 2023-4863, which is being listed by most blogs as a quote Chrome vulnerability, but the problem can occur in any software which uses libwebp. Among them. All Chromium browsers, including Chrome, Brave, Tor, and Edge, uh, Firefox, Thunderbird, Affinity, GIMP, Inkscape, LibreOffice, Telegram, FFmpeg, almost anything built with the Electron or Flutter frameworks, and more Android apps than I can possibly list. Now, heap overflows are not the easiest vulnerabilities to exploit, but in the worst case, it can lead to remote code execution, elevation of privileges, dogs and cats living together, you know, all the worst parts of the Bible. So it's probably a good idea to patch it. This one is a bit scary to me personally because it's one of the very few browser personnel or person one of the very few browser vulnerabilities out there that can't be defeated by my stock technique of running every site without JavaScript. Wait, because even my browser still attempts to display images. Now, according to the NIST entry, this vulnerability is already being exploited in the wild. So be careful loading sites that might have sketchy images. Back in the day, that meant your porn ro role. To be honest, the scariest places now are social media, anywhere that a random hacker can upload an image and it gets auto-blasted into your feed. Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, Mastodon. The vulnerability is already fixed in the latest versions of LibWebP, but because the library is generally packaged in other software, that software will need to release a new version with the fix. Google released a patch for Chrome on the 15th, so expect other Chromium browsers to follow suit very soon. As for the rest of the software, the only way as an end user to be completely safe is to stop using software until you take an update that you know has the patch.
angry thanks to Patrick Funchion for his $50 donation. Um, and as a programmer, I just want to say I'm envious of somebody who has a name like Function. Uh, also, thanks to Steve Edwards for his continued monthly fiat support. And to those who boosted using a new podcast app, Billy Bones, who says, here's to help keep that Buick on the road. Memes 1337, leap boost to keep the tech news angry as it should be. No sugarcoating in this shit show industry. Stacy says, great show. What's your other show? My other show is called Grumpy Old Benz. It is at grumpyoldbenz.com. It goes live on Wednesdays, and I do it with a man named Darren O'Neill, who, if you like this show, you will probably hate him. But I'm in it too, so you might like it. I might be kidding about that, and I might just be giving him crap. Uh, Mr. Mister, love a story with a happy ending. Started off as a face plant, but you got your node slash stats back okay. Uh, that is true. I During the live recording, my node was crapped out yesterday, or last week, and I managed to get it back before publishing, so I dropped in a little bit of extra after the closing music that said, hey, by the way, thank you to everybody. I got my node back up. Yay! Yeah, I, I almost make this technology stuff sound easy, don't I, with a new hardware software problem every single week. And also thanks to Niggy and Joel W., who boosted with no note. Angry Tech News is produced on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors, we don't play ads, and we don't charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. If you received some value from listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click on the donate button. Send what this episode was worth to you, whether it's $5, $50, or the cost of a Pixel watch repair. That's it for now. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the angry programmer with a mic. I'll be back next week with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the angry programmer Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay angry.